Starting a business can be like riding a roller coaster. How do you end up alive and in one piece when you get to the end? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. Probably as many people willing to give advice to fledgling entrepreneurs as there are entrepreneurs, and this proffered wisdom often can be confusing and contradictory. So, what are the best tips for individuals who are boldly setting forth to start new companies? We're going to hear a few of them today in my conversation with serial entrepreneur and investor John Chisholm. He's the author of a new book called "Unleash Your Inner Company: Use Passion and Perseverance to Build Your Ideal Business." That title is significant because it stresses the need for both head and heart when you set out on your perilous startup journey. Yes, you need passion, but you must also possess a realistic appraisal of customer need. Then there's the question of when and how to seek funding for your venture. You might be surprised by Chisholm's answer. So let's hear from a man who has 30 years of experience in launching successful tech ventures and has also been fired from jobs at least three times. Here is my conversation. With John Chisholm. John Chisholm, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. The book is called Unleash Your Inner Company, Use Passion and Perseverance to Build Your Ideal Business. And I want to touch on a number of the points that you make in your book on how entrepreneurs can start their own businesses successfully in today's climate. But first, I want to ask you a more general question. What is the climate out there for entrepreneurs at the moment? How do you perceive that? Well, as I say in the book, Bob, I think from a business and technological standpoint, it has only gotten easier to start your own business over the last 20 years. And I say that because my first business I started in 1992, so actually 23 years ago. Technology platforms are more powerful so that you it takes smaller development teams to uh, do whatever you want to do. The Internet has made it possible to find customers and find suppliers more easily. Uh, you can find potential investors more easily than you could 20 years ago through the Internet. You can search on them, get to know them. So in most respects, starting a business has has become easier. The one area I talk about in the book where it has become more challenging is regulatory compliance. And I th this is kind of a hidden cost of regulations that we don't hear much about. And indeed, it's it's challenging because there's no single one huge regulation which deters entrepreneurs. There are many separate regulations in many different industries. But apart from that, I think generally speaking, it's gotten easier rather than harder to start your own business. Well, let's start at the beginning. And I think you start at the beginning in your book with the concept of passion. 
the need to have a passion for what it is you're doing. And you spend some pages on helping the reader to understand what his or her passion might be. And I was reading that and I thought, well, isn't it true that if you have a passion, you already know what it is. And if you don't know it, it's not really a passion. I wonder if there's a little bit of a contradiction there. First of all, you're absolutely right that passion is absolutely essential for starting a successful business. If you're passionate about a field, you're more likely to discover sooner than others what are unsatisfied needs in that field because you're using the different products and services in it and you're going deep with them and you're starting to bump up against the boundaries of what's possible or convenient with those products and services. And so you find out about unsatisfied customer needs sooner. Also, passion gives you the staying power to stick with whatever field it is that you're working on because you're going to come up against obstacles and passion helps you break through those obstacles. I like to say there are really two things you need, passion and perseverance, and that they reinforce each other. Passion is an attitude. Perseverance is a behavior. And if we just stick with something long enough so that we get good at it, so that we love it, that's an example of perseverance driving passion. If we uh, already love something so deeply that the an activity or a field of endeavor so that the hours go by like minutes, it's easy to persevere under those circumstances. And that's an ex- example of passion driving perseverance. So you can see they drive each other. One thing gets you started, the other keeps you going. Exactly. We hear a lot more about passion these days than perseverance. Almost every management book out there nowadays talks about passion. Uh, That sounds easy and fun. Perseverance sounds like hard work. But as I've said, the two reinforce each other. And I don't know of anybody who talks or any other book that talks about how the two reinforce each other and form a positive feedback loop. But whenever you see exceptional performance in any field, be it business, sports, art, investing, you name it, probably the combination of passion and perseverance are at work in that exception to make that exceptional performance possible. Let's stick with the passion for a little little while longer here. I'm wondering to what extent, though, you need to temper that passion, because you do spend a number of pages in the book helping the reader to understand or how to achieve that a very objective, cold kind of thinking, creating the calculation of what true market needs are. And I'm wondering, is there a way in which passion can take you down the wrong path? If it's something that you are super passionate about versus something else over here that the market really needs that you might not be so passionate about, but maybe that's the direction you should go in. Can passion sometimes take you off the path? Well, first of all, no matter what area it is you're passionate about, there are likely to be unsatisfied customer needs, almost certain to be unsatisfied customer needs. And and the book shows you how to find and validate a potentially infinite number of unsatisfied customer needs in an area. Let me give you some examples. Let's say your passions are long hot baths, kittens, and comic books. <laughs> okay. The, the, those, are the, those are the three least business-oriented things I'm, I can think of. But even in those areas, long hot baths, let's take that. People like to read and listen to music and talk on the phone when they're in the tub. How about a floating waterproof case for your iPad or your smartphone so that you can talk on the phone or read while you're in the tub? Kittens. People love kittens, 
but they grow up to be cats and they lose a lot of their cuddliness. Uh, what about a diet or a genetic therapy that would enable a kitten to stay a kitten longer or perhaps for its entire life? Comic books, the hugely successful trade show Comic Con attracts over 130,000 people every year in San Diego. It's been hugely profitable. So no matter what your passion is, chances are good that uh, there's an unsatisfied need that, that you can find in it that, that because of your passion and perseverance, you're ideally suited to address. Sometimes I hear from young people, I'm not passionate about anything. What do I do? Well, the good news is anyone can become passionate about something. It may take work. It may require sticking with a particular field that you're just interested in for many hours, going deep with it, and learning as much as you can about it, talking to others who have expertise in that field. The deeper you go, the more time you spend with it, the more engaging it becomes and the more passionate you become about it. Mm -hmm. And the book offers exercises in the, at the end of chapter one for how you can become passionate if your passions are not well-defined. Okay, so but let's talk about this idea of assessing customer needs. You do talk about the need to really get out there and do a deep dive into where you think there are gaps and where there are needs for product. But then there's also the other, the other thought, and this is sort of a Steve Jobs kind of thing, is that customers don't know what they need, and sometimes you give them something and they don't realize that they need it until you made it up. So is there a little bit of a um, contradiction there? Or, I mean, which way should you go? Should you try to find that existing need or should you create an exciting new need and then sell it to the customer when they didn't even know they needed it? Great question. The title of Chapter 4 is Don't Listen to Your Customers, Discover Their Goals. The chapter starts with a little story of an entrepreneur who's interviewing an elderly couple to find out their needs. And uh, they're saying they need a better mousetrap, in effect. And as the interview proceeds, the entrepreneur gradually realized they don't want a better way to trap and uh, mice once they get into the house. What they'd really like is a way to keep mice from getting into the house in the first place. So the, the entrepreneur goes down that path instead. What are ways that I could, using chemicals or electric pulses or some kind of technologies to keep mice from getting in in the first place. So you have to take what the customer says with a grain of salt. And rather than listen to their proposed solutions, listen to what it is they're trying to achieve. In this case, keep mice out of the house in the first place. You may have to listen between the lines to and, and really grill down on them to, to understand what they want to accomplish. Then it's your job as the entrepreneur to evaluate all the different means, all the, learn as stay apprised of as many new technologies as you can that might be applicable for helping them reach that goal, achieve, satisfy that need, and then come up with a solution that, that best needs it. Yeah. Now, you hit hard on this idea of, of the importance of being different, too, which makes a lot of sense. But yes. there are times where they're not when something might be a really good idea, but it's just too early for it. It just needs a few more years, whether the technology hasn't caught up or whether the, the, the market hasn't caught up or whether consumers aren't ready for it. There are times like that, are there not? Yes. The need is probably there and real, but the technology may not have advanced to the point yet where it can be reduced to practice 
or cost-effectively or economically applied to satisfy that customer's needs. And so one thing to consider is perhaps uh, scale back the need and, and rather than try to address the whole thing, see if you can take a baby step in the direction of helping the customer get to where they want to get. And maybe the available technologies will let you do that practically or cost-effectively. I mean, when you look at, for example, the evolution of personal computing over the last 30 years, the kinds of software and user interfaces that we know and take for granted today simply could not have existed 30 years ago because the hardware wasn't there. And in fact, even the software platforms weren't there to enable the kinds of functionality that we take for granted today. And so instead, we've seen a series of baby steps. Well, some of them were pretty major, but but smaller steps, many of them, thousands of them, which over the decades have made possible the type of graphical user interfaces we take advantage today. In fact, I can think of one of the early graphical user interfaces, Vizion, one of the early uh, desktop publishing uh, providers that required such a huge configuration at that time, a 5 or 10 megabyte hard disk, which few people had in the early 1980s, or half a megabyte of RAM, which again was huge back in those days, that it just uh, would not perform on the platforms that people had back then. So you are limited by what's possible uh, with available technologies or by the enhancements to those technologies that you're able to make. Is it important also to assess your own strengths and limitations with regard to your ability to bring this idea to market? Do you have exercises and ways that somebody can do that? Absolutely. In fact, the whole process is one of finding the best fit between the unsatisfied customer needs and areas that you're passionate about on the one hand and your resources on the other. I say there are only two things you need to start a company, a real unsatisfied customer need and an advantage for satisfying that need. Your advantages are a subset for any particular customer need for satisfying it are a subset of the resources that you have that are applicable to that customer need. And your resources that are applicable are a further subset of all of the resources you have for satisfying that need. So it's a, it's a largely a process of search and finding the best fit. It's very evolutionary. So uh, to remember your resources and think about them, I use the uh, acronym STARS. Your skills, the technologies you know about, your assets, and those could be physical, financial, or knowledge-based, your achievements, your relationships, your reputation, and your strengths as your inner strengths. Uh, that spells the word stars with two A's and two R's. Put each of those letters at the top of a sheet of paper and make seven columns, one for each letter, and write down as many different resources that you can think of in each one. Your scuba certification, your your degree in biology, your the fact that you uh, had a successful business in high school or college, whatever they are, put them down, even if they don't seem very applicable, uh, because we don't know at, at the beginning of the process which customer need we're going to discover is the best fit for you. And then it's a continuous process of seeing where that best fit is, strengthening the fits, 
by finding the right co-founder, hiring the right team members, acquiring the right tools, licensing the right technologies, refining the customer needs on the other hand, crossing the ones off the list where the fits seem to be least strong, focusing on the ones where the fit is the, the strongest, and then ultimately narrowing it down to a single strong fit between you and that customer need. And then for that for that one you select, then it's a matter of prototyping, launching, and then scaling up the biz- your business. That's an interesting exercise. You know, what I also find interesting is we have to get very deep into your book before you even start to talk about money. Now, a number of people would, would think that goes on page one. You know, the first thing we need to do is we need to find the money before we get going. But you actually say, don't waste time raising money. What do you mean by that? In my experience, uh, starting businesses and and, uh, investing in businesses and talking to potential entrepreneurs, aspiring and practicing ones over the decades, 98% plus of entrepreneurs in my experience seek money before they're ready. And as a result, they waste a lot of time that they could better spend further refining and and advancing their, their business or product, and and two, they make a bad Im- initial impression on investors. Much better to wait until you're ready. Then you create a good impression, and the deal tends to come together more quickly. And you can spend more of your time doing what both you and your investors want you to do, which is focus on building the business. Now, when are the best times to raise money? Well, they are either right after you have significantly reduced risk in the business from the investor's standpoint or significantly increased upside potential. So if you are currently profitable, your business, great. You've eliminated the risk that you can generate revenue. If you are generating revenue, you've eliminated a risk that your product will achieve market acceptance. If you have customers and have achieved market acceptance, that eliminates the risk that your prototype works and so forth. So the further you can go down this path on reducing risk to the investor, or increasing the upside potential before you raise money, the greater your, your chances of success will be. You know, everybody says you've got to come up with the so-called elevator speech at the same time. You'd be able to say in the smallest number of words possible exactly what your idea is and make it exciting to a VC or an investor who has about 60 seconds to hear you out. Is that overstated or is that actually an important aspect as well? Well, I think it is very important to be able to articulate the benefits of what you're doing concisely. Uh, Something that really impresses me is a very clear customer need that the entrepreneurs are addressing. I remember talking to a couple of entrepreneurs who were very excited about their new technology that was browser-based and network-aware, but they couldn't tell me what customer needed satisfied. And after we talked about it for 10 or 15 minutes, we finally concluded that it helped a work group communicate and collaborate. But that need is satisfied by many much larger players. Any of SAP, Oracle, Salesforce, Microsoft, and Google already have workgroup software that helps workgroups communicate and, and coordinate. So that was really a technology in search of a customer need. Rather than bring that product to market, if they could find a way to offer it in conjunction with existing 
of the major players so that they were collaborating with them and partnering with them rather than competing with them, that would be a way that would make this business more attractive potential investors. Of course, that's not as large a business with as not as high an upside potential, but it has a greater probability of success. One thing I often say is I started my first company with a really cool technology for which there was no market need. And uh, the, the technology was conditional voting. It's not important what it was. I talk about it in the book. But it took me six to nine months to get off of that shtick and find a real customer need that really was real. And that was online surveys. And so we evolved the software from conditional voting to online surveys. And it became a hit in 1995. So start with the customer need to ensure that you're business really does satisfy a customer need. That tends to be a counterintuitive thing for us software engineers and computer science types, especially in Silicon Valley. We're much more geared towards starting with the cool technology and considering the customer need an afterthought. It's not a path for success. The path is to start with the need, articulate it, understand it, understand who the customer is, and then figure out the solution for it. We're close to being out of time, John, but I have to ask you this. When you were starting out, did you follow your own advice? Or is this book the product of your years of experience that we're now learning from? And in fact, even the mistakes that you made during that time. Or was was this wisdom all in your head at the beginning? Or, or is it the product of just years of experience? It was not at all in my head at the beginning. It is a distillation of what I've learned about entrepreneurship over the last 30 years and not just the companies I've started myself, but the meetings and mentoring and consulting I've done to many other entrepreneurs. The book has had the benefit of going through lots of case studies, refinements, and workshops as a workshop before I reduced it to a book. And so many of the questions I address are real ones that come up from real entrepreneurs that just didn't happen to affect me. For example, the question of what to do if you're not passionate about something. That was uh, directly a response to questions that came up in the book, in the workshops. Uh, should I get an MBA? Should I join uh, an established company before breaking out on my own? Uh, if so, how long should I stay there? These are all questions I address in Unleash Your Inner Company that uh, were a direct result of doing workshops with entrepreneurs while writing the book and before writing the book. Well, I wish we had more time to talk about it. There's so much more I'd like to ask you, but we do direct our listeners to check it out. It's called Unleash Your Inner Company. Use passion and perseverance to build your ideal business, and we will link to it in the show notes where the book can be obtained. In the meantime, John Chisholm, I want to thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about this book. Thanks very much. Bob, thanks so much for having me. That was my conversation with John Chisholm, author of a new book on how to build your ideal business. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where he posts a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.